you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 32. Put my stuff on the uh, outside aisle. There's a basket underneath that chair. If you'd grab that basket and pass it down. There's a connect card in there. If you're a guest, we'd love for you to fill out that card and let us know that you are here. We've got a welcome area on the way back, on the way out on the right. I'll be in there. I'd love to say hello to you. We will send you one email. If you write your email address down, we'll send you one, and that'll be it. Unless you just can't get enough, and then we'll send you more. So you can decide on that, but we would love to thank you for being here. A couple of other announcements. Last week was our small group Sunday. All of our small groups are launching over the course of the next couple of weeks. If you consider Stonebridge your home church, I'd strongly encourage you to look at those small groups. All of the information is in that Welcome Center. You can grab a brochure that has the different groups listed. Several of them are closed. They're full, but we can direct you to ones that are still open and that we think would be a good fit. So you can see me or you can see Kim about that. We would love to help you get connected and plugged in. Two other things. Starting next Sunday, we're going to start a third service in here from 5 to 7 at night. You don't know it this week, but if you were here last week, it was beyond. It's not like a good crowded. It's a bad crowded, uh, particularly at 11. It's too difficult to find a seat. People who are guests can't find a place to sit. It's difficult to even move around. And so we're creating another service primarily to address capacity. My long-term hope is that we have 50 to 70 folks commit to Sunday night. So if that's something that would be interesting to you, if you like to start new things, if you would like to be in a group that's smaller, it'll still be a service. It will just feel a little different because there'll be fewer people in the room. So September, October, we'd love for you to check it out, see if it's something that you want to do, and then make a commitment, maybe moving towards Thanksgiving or Christmas. We'd like to see that service kind of get solidified. Uh, So you can see me if you have any questions about that. But again, it will be a service. We'll have children's ministry. Um, It's during youth, so that's what the students will be doing. And again, you can see me if you have any questions. And one other thing, next next Saturday we have an outreach with Park Street Elementary School. Those are our partners in education. We did this last year. It's a back-to-school carnival. For some of you, you're probably thinking school started a month ago, but it's when their administration asked us to do it. We're collecting school supplies that we're going to give to the counselors and they're going to distribute those as they see fit. And so if you want to grab, there's a thing outside, a little board. You can grab a sheet of paper, and it tells you what we need or what they need. And we'll give all of those supplies to them. And also we'll do a carnival next Saturday from 9 to 12. And we need volunteers to help set up, to actually run the carnival, and to help clean up. All of that information is in the Welcome Center. We'd love for you to sign up. It's a kid-friendly deal, so if you have children, they can come. And they can help as well. We need people to help with food, games, taking pictures, cutting hair. You do need to know what you're doing to, this is not a chance to brush up, brush up on your skills. So, and set up and clean up. It was a big deal for the community last year that we did this. And so we want to make sure it's a, it's a great thing. So if you've got some space in your schedule next Saturday between 730 and we'll probably be done cleaning up about 1230. If you've got an hour and a half somewhere in that gap. Uh, We would love to see you. Okay, Genesis 32, we've been looking at Jacob. The lenses that we've been using are personal transformation. Jacob was called, he was chosen, he was elected for a purpose. That purpose was to be the one through whom God would fulfill his promises. So Jacob had a job, and then God goes about really qualifying Jacob for that job. So God, before Jacob's born, while he's still in the womb, he says, that's my guy. And then what God does, and what we've been looking at, is the way God 
forms Jacob's character to make him worthy of this calling. When Jacob was born up through, actually up through what we'll see today, he's got a lot of strengths. He's tenacious. He's bold. uh, He's really, really smart. He's a strategic thinker. He's strong. But all of those strengths are used in his flesh. He uses all of those strengths to accomplish his own purposes. They're not submitted to God at all. And so that's this process of God getting Jacob from being self-reliant, which really comes across as being a con man, to being dependent upon God. It's a long process, and there's some fits and some starts. A couple of weeks ago, we looked, and Jacob is at least beginning to acknowledge God. I wouldn't say that he's actually trusting him yet, but he's at least recognizing that God does exist and that God does have some influence on what's going on in his life. If you remember where we left off, Jacob has been with Laban, who's both his father-in-law and his boss, for 20 years. Laban is sneakier than Jacob, and so he's kind of conned him over the course of the last 20 years. Jacob leaves, sneaks away from Laban with his family. He's got two wives. He has 11 sons, at least one daughter, most likely more, and this massive amount of livestock and servants that he's accumulated. Jacob is loaded at this point He's running away from Laban. Laban tracks him down in order to take back what he feels like is his. God intervenes. He tells Laban in a dream, don't touch Jacob. And so they make a treaty. They literally draw a line in the sand and say, you don't cross to my side and I won't cross to yours. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 32, chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way in addition to Laban. And the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the place Machanahim, which means two camps. So Jacob's referring to his camp and then God's camp, this camp of the angels. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and I've remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending the message to my lord that I may find favor in your eyes. That doesn't really sound like Jacob. He doesn't talk like that. But here's what's going on. If you remember, Jacob and Esau are twins. Esau is the oldest. God picked Jacob. And there's rivalry between them. The last that we saw, I think it was in chapter 27, Jacob had just stolen the blessing that rightfully went to the firstborn son. So this blessing that should be Esau's from their father Isaac, Jacob steals with the help of his mother, Rebekah. He just flat lies to his dad, pretends to be Esau, steals this blessing, which is a huge deal culturally. You may be thinking, what's the big deal about stealing a blessing? A huge deal culturally for Jacob to steal that. And then Esau gets ticked, and he says, my dad's going to die soon, and when we're done mourning for him, the only thing that's going to make me feel better is killing Jacob. His mother, Rebecca, hears him say that, and Jacob's her favorite, so she says, Jacob, why don't you go to Laban's house, that's her brother, go stay with your uncle for a while, Find a wife. I'll call you back when it's safe. You just need to be there for a few days. That's literally what it says. Just be there for a few days. It's been 20 years, and she hadn't called him. He's got no word from his mom that it's safe to come home. So when he leaves, he has to leave Laban. He has a dream, and God says it's time to go. I actually don't think that was much uh, motivation for Jacob. I think the bigger deal for Jacob was that Laban was not happy with him anymore, and neither were Laban's kids. Jacob's flocks were increasing and Laban's flocks were decreasing and Laban and his kids were getting upset with Jacob and there was some hostility there and he said, it's time for me to leave. He could kind of read the 
writing on the wall and said, it's time for me to go. And so Jacob's leaving, knowing he's possibly walking into a hostile environment. He can't go home. He can't go back to Laban. He's drawn the line in the sand. So all he can do is go home, but he's not sure if he's going to be welcomed or not. So he sends some messengers out and says, see if y'all can take the temperature of my brother. And he talks in this humble language that we've never seen from him before. Just find out if it's okay for me to come home. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. Yay. And 400 men are with him. No. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So here's the picture. Jacob's got everything. He's got his two wives. He's got his at least 12 kids. He's got a massive amount of animals, all these servants, and they are slow. Slow because there's so many of them, and they're working their way back home. And Esau comes out, comes to greet him with 400 men. Just to give you a picture, I don't know if that sounds like a lot. Back in uh, Genesis 14, which we talked about in 2012, this is what happened. Abraham's nephew Lot has been taken prisoner by four kings. There's four kings in their army. Lot's taken prisoner, and Abraham goes after them with 318 men, and he defeats them. So 318 men can defeat four kings and their armies. Esau's coming after Jacob and his family with 400 men. Probably a hostile situation. Jacob's right to be terrified, I think, at this point. He hasn't heard anything from his mama that said it's safe to come home. And now Esau's welcoming party is 400 men coming, at, coming towards him. And so Jacob, in typical Jacob nature, comes up with the plan. He schemes. I'm going to divide everything I've got into. Worst case scenario, Esau wipes out half, and I get to keep half. So his initial response to, to this news that Esau's coming at him is to create a plan, which is typical of him uh, from what we've seen in his past. Then Jacob prayed. So first he plans, and then he prays. Probably not the best order of events. Listen to this prayer. This is the first prayer we ever see recorded uh, from Jacob. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, not God of me, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. You're the one that got me into this mess. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this, this Jordan, but now I've Excuse me, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. But you've said I will surely make you prosperous and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted, and if we're all dead, that can't happen. That's basically what Jacob is saying. There's one other interaction we see with him and God in chapter 28. Remember that place, Bethel, stairway, angels ascending, descending. Jacob makes a deal with God. He doesn't pray. He says, God, here's my offer to you. You get me back here safe, and then you can have the privilege of being my God, and I'll give you 10% of everything that you give to me. Not necessarily the greatest deal in the world, but that's the only kind of firsthand interaction we see between Jacob and God. So this is his first prayer. At least he does pray, and there's nothing wrong with praying when you're terrified. That's a great time to pray. Maybe it would be better to have prayed first. 
Then here's what Jacob does. He spent the night there. From what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. He said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? And where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? This is what you're to say. Listen to this. Again, it doesn't sound like Jacob. They belong to your servant Jacob. They're a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You're to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will, he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. So you get the picture. This is a massive gift. 550 animals, 490 are females. So that's the promise that they're going to continue to have babies. And so this is the gift that keeps giving for Esau. It shows you, it gives you a, a picture into how rich Jacob is that he can give 550 animals away. And the way he does it, he sends them out. It's like... You with your kids at Christmas, you parcel out the gifts because you don't want them ripping them all open at once. So here's one, and then here's the second one, and then here's the third one. His hope is that by the time it gets to Jacob, whatever anger Esau has will have dissipated, and he'll receive him back. So we have plan, pray, plan just in case the prayer doesn't work. That's basically the way Jacob has going about this. There's no indication that what he's doing here with the gifts is out of any sense of obedience to God or any revelation. What it looks like is he prayed, and just in case that doesn't work, he's come up with a plan B. He's created this safety net. Well, just in case God can't take care of Esau, I'm going to send him all this stuff and see if that will take care of Esau for me. See if that will pacify or appease him. His motivation is explicitly stated there. Maybe this will make him happy, so he'll receive me. I don't think any of that's coming from a place of trust in Jacob's heart. Again, there's no leading from God at all to do that. Now, this next section, this, this is the most important section in Jacob's life. Everything changes in these next few verses, and they're also some of the most enigmatic verses in the Bible. So we're just going to do our best to kind of wade through them um, as well as we can. That night, Jacob got up, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that Jacob's hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So, to be clear, God and Jacob wrestle. The man is God. 
How do we know that? Jacob says, I saw him face to face. I saw God face to face, and yet I lived. And only God has the authority and the power to change someone's name. So this man who wrestles with Jacob is God. God in the flesh, they physically wrestle. This isn't a metaphor for a spiritual struggle. There is a spiritual struggle going on in Jacob, but he's also physically wrestling with this man. So just a picture, Jacob sends everything he's got across the river, and then he stays. And he knows this very well could be the last night for him. Esau's coming with 400 men. He's scared to death, terrified, doesn't know what he's going to do. Some people say he's taking the night to pray. Nothing in Jacob's character said that's what he was taking the night to do. I'm thinking he was drawn in the dirt trying to figure out what's next. What's another option? What's another scenario? What's another plan? He's scheming, I think. He's trying to figure a way out of this situation. There's no lights. Whatever light there is, it's from the moon and the stars. So I don't know. Who knows how much he could see. And this man appears, and they start wrestling. Now, if it was you and a man appeared in your house tonight and started wrestling you, you probably would not say, hey, I bet that's God. So I don't think that's necessarily the conclusion that Jacob jumped to initially. I don't, he couldn't, I don't think he could see the guy clearly, and they just start wrestling. I'm not a wrestler at all. But I do know, from what I read, Olympics, you wrestle two three-minute periods. Boxing, it's 12 three-minute rounds. This is all night long. I have no idea. It's exhausting to wrestle somebody. I have no idea how Jacob wrestled God all night long or what that looked like. I don't know if it was Greco-Roman or freestyle or WWE. I'm not sure exactly what they were doing, but they were engaged physically for hours. So here's a picture to me. Les, is that what you're hoping for? Let me see. This is really difficult for me also, but this is how much I want you to see this picture. And Les is excited. So, huh? I'm going to. I've been working on my moves. So, this is the picture to me. So, they're wrestling. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but let's say it's this. Hopefully not. So, we're wrestling. And so, it says, the Bible says that the man could not overcome Jacob. Huge there. Could not overpower It's the same word as overcome. So somehow our God who is omnipotent, who can do anything, can't overcome Jacob, this man who he created. We know Jacob's really strong. At one point, there's this rock in front of a well, and it takes multiple shepherds to move it, and Jacob could do it all by himself. So he's really strong, but he and God are at a deadlock. Who knows what Jacob's thinking? Maybe he's just trying to get a tie out of the deal. Again, I'm not certain he knows it's God, but they're wrestling and then it gets close to the sun coming up, and God needs to get out of there. And so what he's, he's trying to get free, he realizes, I can't, I can't win. And we'll talk about what it means for God not to be able to come overcome Jacob. So they're wrestling, and maybe Jacob's got God in a headlock, and is giving him a noogie or something like that. And then, don't touch me, God, God touches Jacob's hip, and he dislocates it. That's got to hurt like crazy. Dislocates his hip. So here's the picture for me. Jacob goes from this to this. Because he's only got one. Oh, come on. <laughs> he, he gets him. I, I think that's what happens. Suddenly, Jacob has no base. He can't, he can't fight. He's got one leg. And so there, he's, the Bible says he clings to him. So picture a bear hug. Just like this. And God says, let me go. 
And Jacob says, no. And I think the reason, thank you. I think, I think the reason Jacob says no <laughs> is because he realizes he's done. He knows he can't fight Esau. He already knew that. That's why he devised this whole appeasement strategy. But I think he figured, hey, I can run away. He can't run anymore. He's got a bum leg. His hip is dislocated. He's got no shot. So what has happened is God says, I can't overcome him. What does that mean for an omnipotent God to not be able to overcome someone who he's created? Let me say this. God can't overcome you either. And he can't overcome me. If God wants us to become fully mature sons and daughters of God, he can't force us into that position. The depth of trust that he's looking for from us, the depth of love that he's looking for from us that says, I will follow you, I will obey you regardless of circumstances or consequences, that depth of relationship cannot be forced. It can only be one, W-O-N. It can be inspired and it can be freely given. It can't be coerced. C.S. Lewis says this about God's and overpowering. The irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of God's scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for God useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. If There is a stream of thought that says God's grace is irresistible. I don't swim in that river. What I believe is that God's, you can say no to God. And that's what's happening, God and Jacob. They're, they are wrestling. God can't overpower him because if he overpowers Jacob, then he forfeits the opportunity for Jacob to become the man he needs Jacob to be to fulfill his destiny. If he overpowers Jacob, then Jacob can't be a son. All he can ever be is a slave. And that's not what God is looking for. He's not looking for slaves. He's not looking for servants. He's looking for sons and daughters. And so he invites us into relationship with him. And the massive risk that he takes is that we can say no. And that's what you see here. He can't overpower Jacob because to overpower Jacob is to violate the very thing God is trying to do in Jacob, which is to conform him into the image of Jesus. And the same thing is true for us. He can't overpower you either. He can't force you into the spot where he wants you to go. He's looking for your growth and your transformation. He's looking for a depth of trust and love that says, I'm going to follow you regardless of circumstances or consequences. And that can't be coerced. It can only be one. And so what God does is he dislocates Jacob's hip. I don't know where that fits in your box of things that a kind and compassionate and loving God does. But he dislocates Jacob's hip. And in that moment, everything changes for Jacob. That's a pivotal moment in his life. Because he realizes for the first time he's done. He's out of options. He already knew he couldn't go man to man with Esau. Now he knows he can't run away. He can't go behind because he's drawn a line in the sand. And Laban said, if you cross it, you're mine. He can't go forward because that's where Esau is. And again, now he can't run away. He's got no options. God effectively has boxed Jacob in and brought him to this place where his only option is a bear hug. All he can do in the moment is cling to God. He recognizes, I think, when God dislocates his hip that there's somebody, this is not just a guy. I think he recognizes it's God because he asked for a blessing. Blessings always flow downhill, so he recognizes this guy's superior to me. And then, again, the fact that he says, I've seen God face to face. So he recognizes in this moment who he's 
dealing with, and he does the only he takes the only course of action available, which is to cling to God and to say, "You got to help me, bless me, make things better for me, because if you don't, I'm done." Again, remember, he's terrified about what's going to happen when the sun comes up. So God can't overcome or can't overpower Jacob. And then God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means what? He who struggles with God and man and overcomes. Same word. The thing that God couldn't do to Jacob, Jacob does to God. Again, how does that fit in our box? How does, God, how does Jacob prevail or overcome with God? The first man, that one's a little simpler for us. How does, God, how does Jacob overcome with Laban? It's the only person he's overcome up to this point in the story. What, are we, what do you remember? He has a dream, and in the dream, he sees a, a goat, a male goat. And all the goats that are mating are speckled and spotted and dark. And so Jacob says, hey, those are the ones I want. Give me those. Give me the speckled and the spotted and the, sh- and the dark sheep and the speckled and the spotted and the dark goats. Even though they're a minority of the flock, I'm going to take them for me. And that's how he overcomes Laban, is he asks for the minority animals in a herd, and then God multiplies them. Jacob does that weird thing with the branches. You remember that with the sticks where he peels them back. And we know that has zero effect on the animals. None at all. But again, it's Jacob kind of, God said, this is what I'm going to do. And it's Jacob trying to help God along, aid him in the process. But what you see, the way Jacob overcame Laban was by responding to this dream he had from God. When Laban pursues Jacob, what happens? He has a dream and God says, don't touch him, Laban. Or you're done. That's how Jacob overcomes Laban. God stands up for him and he responds in obedience to revelation from God. That's it. That's what it looks like for Jacob to overcome men. It's by trusting God. So how does Jacob overcome God? This is what Hosea 12 says about it. In the womb, Jacob grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. Jacob struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. So how does Jacob overcome God? By weeping and begging. Not exactly a show of strength from Jacob. Weeping is a sign of repentance. He recognizes in this moment when his hip is dislocated. I've been running in the wrong direction. I've been struggling. I've been wrestling. I've been resisting God. And I'm sorry. That's what's happening there. That's part of that clinging. is a recognition that he's been fighting the wrong battle the whole time. That he's been resisting the one who desires to help him, and then he begs. He implores, God, bless me, help me, do something for me. That's how God, that's how Jacob overcomes God. That's how Jacob prevails with God, by weeping, repenting, and begging, asking for things that only God can give to him. And the same thing is true for us. It may be weird for you to think, I've got to overcome God. I've got to prevail with God. But there's this picture here where this is true for us. What God wants to see from us is this tenacity, which Jacob had, had just always been pulled in the wrong direction. And this boldness, which Jacob had, had just always went in the wrong direction. This tenacity and this boldness with him that says, I'm not letting go until I get what I want. That sounds selfish to us. But that's what God is looking for. And Jacob did that. He bear-hugged God, clung to him until God blessed him. And the way God blessed him was he changed his name, which signals a change in identity or change in destiny, if you like that better. The name change signaled a change in Jacob's destiny. He went from being Jacob, the heel grabber, the con man to Israel, the one who struggles and overcomes. And in that new name, Jacob had peace. 
just like he overcame Laban, he, he could trust that he would overcome Esau. The key to overcoming Laban was trusting God, and that will be the key to overcoming Esau. We'll look at that in a minute. And with God, he prevailed or overcame God, overcame with God. How did he do that? By repenting and by asking God to give him the things that only he could. Verse 30, chapter 33, I'm going to read this real quick, and we'll just to put a bow on the scene. Jacob looked up, so it sounds like immediately. It, this has gone, the wrestling match has gone all the way until daytime, and then as soon as he's done with all the naming, he looks up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Jacob's got to be, who knows, freaking out at that point. He divides his children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And if you couldn't see the next verse, based on Joseph's character, where would you say he would go? At the end, he himself went on ahead, different for him. He's never done that before. He went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Never bowed to anybody. You're seeing a change in Jacob. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob said, "These are the chi- they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, those are his favorites, they came and bowed down as well. Esau said, what's the meaning of all the flocks and herds that I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, Jacob said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said, My Lord knows the children are tender that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of their children until I come to my Lord in Sayer. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. Why do that, Jacob said. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth where he built a place for himself. He made shelters for his livestock. That's why it's called Sukkoth. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. He camped within sight of the city for a hundred pieces of silver. He bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Then he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So real briefly here, what you see it's kind of the, the, the coming together of things for Jacob. First, he grabs onto this new name, this altar he built. He calls El Elohe Israel. He said, hey, this is my identity. This is the altar for the God of Israel, my, me, not Jacob, but Israel. You see that God had been at work in Esau's heart independent of Jacob. That's where the trust piece came in for Jacob. Are you not going to trust in your ability to win your brother back over your ability to beat your brother, or your ability to run for your brother? Are you going to trust that God can actually fix it for you? In my opinion, and I could be wrong, it's speculative, is that the same night that God is wrestling with Jacob, somebody's wrestling with Esau. Something's going on over here. I think Esau came with every intention of killing Jacob. I don't know why else he takes 400 men out with him to meet him. 
And something happened that one night when Jacob is wrestling. Something goes on in Esau's heart where he's willing to forgive Jacob, releases all his anger, his bitterness, all of that stuff from 20 years that's built up. God does something in Esau's heart, and he says, okay. And his response is genuine. It's not Middle Eastern hospitality. He is genuinely gracious towards Jacob and is glad to see him. Jacob's response, seeing your face, is like seeing the face of God. And it, within hours, Jacob's been reconciled to God and to Esau, and it's similar. He spent his whole life resisting both of them. He spent his whole life honestly treating both of them horribly. And in that moment when he needed, in this moment of confrontation with them, both of them received him back graciously. God and Esau both received Jacob back graciously. He didn't deserve it from either one of them. All he'd done to Esau is con him and cheat him. All he'd done to God is ignore him and resist him. But for both of those people, God and Esau, they received Jacob back graciously. That's why he says seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. So for us, we're going to wrap with this. Let me give you two questions I want you to think about. What does God want from you, and what do you want from him? What does God want for you, from you, and what do you want from him? What God wanted from Jacob was surrender. He wanted total dependence. Guess what he wants from you? The same thing. He wants you to surrender to him. He's looking for this place where you move from Jacob totally relying on himself to Jacob acknowledging God, but continuing to backstop just in case things don't work with God to fully relying on God. It's difficult to to get there, but that's what he's looking for. He's looking for people who trust fully in him. Look at the lengths that he went to to get Jacob there. Pretty incredible. I think God set the whole thing up. God's the one that called Jacob to leave, knowing that Esau was still ticked. He knew. And he said, Jacob, it's time to go anyway. All these circumstances where Jacob was living with Laban, where they were getting jealous of him, they were getting upset with him, and it looks like they were going to take action against him. You can see God's hand in all of that. He's turning up the heat because he needs Jacob to go home. And when they start running and Laban comes and God says to Laban, listen, this is not your fight. You leave him alone. And they draw that line, which which then becomes the back wall for Jacob. He can't retreat past that line. And then Esau's coming at him. And Jacob's there all alone. Who picks the fight? God. God's the one that shows up to wrestle Jacob. Jacob doesn't go looking for anything. He thinks he's going to have his last night to plan and scheme and plot, and he doesn't. God shows up and says, let's go. God brings him to this point. And then what does he do? He dislocates his hip. And he limps for the rest of his life. Those are the links that God goes to to get Jacob to a point where he can say, or where he will say, I'm clinging to you. It's a bear hug on you or nothing. You've got to bless me. I can't do this on my own. What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? There's not a lot of things that God won't do to bring us to a place of complete and total dependence upon him. If he doesn't have all of us, he doesn't have any of us. And so that's where he's going to move us. We said before, what's faith? It's standing on the chair. And if you're you're standing on the chair or you're not. And that's where he wants all of us to be. Why? Because he opposes the proud. Those who say, I don't need him. 
and he gives grace to the humble, those who recognize their need for him and their dependence. Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Because they don't recognize their need for a savior. There's nothing morally worse, evil, less about being rich. But the reason the gospel is grabbed onto by those who are poor much more quickly than those who are rich is because people who are poor know they need help. And so it's not a big jump for them to say, I know I need help in every area of my life, so I get why I need a Savior. It's much more difficult for someone who's used to taking care of himself or herself to say, oh, but I need a Savior. I'm used to writing checks. I'm used to getting whatever, th- whatever I need. I'm used to working hard and having things come my way, whatever it looks like. And that's where most of us live. We're all rich. And so it's difficult for us to recognize our need for a Savior. And so sometimes God has to go to great lengths to get us to a point where we're willing to say, I'm totally dependent upon you. Does that mean everything that bad that happens in your life is because God's trying to get you to a place of dependence? Absolutely not. I honestly, I don't think the cause matters. Pick a reason. It doesn't matter. It's the result of the circumstances. Are the results of these circumstances that are stressful or difficult or disappointing to you, are they bringing you to a place where you're standing on a chair, where you're saying, God, I'm... I need you here. I'm fully dependent upon you. I'm 100% reliant on you. I've got no safety net. I've got no plan B. I've got no, there's no fallbacks for me. It's you or I'm done. That's where he's trying to move you towards. So what do you want from him? Do you even know? Jacob knew. Bless me. And I'm not letting go until you give it to me. I love the South. One of the problems from the South is we're polite. God is not from the south. And he is not polite. He says, what do you want? What do you want? Think about, it's Mark 14, I believe. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, and there's a blind man, Bartimaeus, and he's sitting on the side of the road, screaming like a crazy person. Son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody's trying to get him to be quiet. Jesus doesn't. He notices him. He says, what do you want? I want to see. I want to see. Do you know what you want? The reason we do birthday prayers here the first Sunday of every month is because I want you to have to say, this is what I want. I don't remember what anyone has asked for, so don't take this personally. But it's tragic to me when people can't say what they want. If you're embarrassed in front of the crowd, I get it. But if it's because you don't know, how much are you leaving on the table? God wants, what do you want from him? And if you would say, I'm fine, there's a world out there that's not, ask for them. If you can't ask for yourself, what do you want to see him do? Jacob wrestled all night long. There's four guys. I prayed for them every week since we started. None of them are Christians, and they still aren't. I wish God would overpower them. He won't, but I sure wish he would. And bring them in to the kingdom. I prayed persistently for them, which is something God looks for. Jesus says, pray persistently. I got that part. I don't know that I've wrestled with him. I don't exactly know what that means. But I don't know that I've begged. I don't know that I've implored. I don't know that I've beseeched. That's another synonym for that word beg. I don't know that I've done that. I'm not saying that their salvation depends on me doing that. But what if, some, what if there are things where God's saying, just ask. If you just ask one more time. If you'd ask with a little more depth. If you just wouldn't let go of me then you'll get it. You're letting go too fast. Jacob didn't let go. He, in a sense, put God into a corner. The sun was coming up, and he said, I'm not letting go till I get what I want. 
we read that, golly, you're selfish, petulant. He's God. Why would? And God responds to it. Again, Bartimaeus, you're rude. Why are you yelling at him? He's got bigger fish to fry. Jesus responds to it. He's walking with two guys after his resurrection, Luke 24, going to Emmaus. And they're talking. And then he says, I'm going to keep going and say, no, 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 no. Stay here with us. Okay? And then he stays, and that's when he reveals himself to them. If, he, if those guys had just let Jesus go, they'd have never known they were walking with Jesus. That doesn't work in my brain a lot of times. I don't get it. But there's something about that depth of begging is what it says. I don't like that word, but there's something about that, clinging to him. Where I think what God wants to know is, what do you actually want? If we strip it all down, in your heart, what do you want? And are you willing to wrestle with me about that? And we say, God, why can't you just give it to us the first time? Why do we have to wrestle? I don't know the answer. I know he's about our character development and our maturity. And so maybe there's something in the wrestling that strengthens us, that makes us more like Jesus. I don't know. But I know, biblically, if you read through, there's something about wrestling with God. There's something about not taking no for an answer until you actually get no for an answer. Jesus, sweating blood, that's how much he's, he's wrestling. There are times where God says no. He said no to Jesus. If he says no to him, he's going to have any problem saying no to me or to you. He says no to Paul. Again, if he says no to him, he's not going to have any problem saying no to me. So it's not that God's un, it's not that he won't, but I think oftentimes we say no for him. We pray for a minute, pray for a few days, pray for a few weeks, and we go, oh, I guess that's not God's will for me, and we kind of move on to something else. Again, think of that picture, the bear hug. We release him too quick. And I want you and me to get strong enough in our faith, deep enough in our love, strong enough in our trust, that we'll cling to him until he either gives us what we're asking for, or he says no. If it says no, let's move on. But let's at least wait until he answers. And let's wrestle until he answers. Let's pray. God, my prayer for all of the men and women in this room, me included, is that you would bring us to a place where we are dependent upon you. And I don't pray that lightly. I don't want to get a dislocated hip. I don't want anybody in here to have a dislocated hip. But if the only way for us to live lives of dependence is to walk with a limp, then okay. You give grace to the humble, those who recognize their need for you. And that's why you need us dependent, because those are the only people who you can give grace to. And you know how much we need your grace. So it's all from this heart of love that you even crippled Jacob. And so for us, God, give us eyes to see where you're at work in our circumstances, how you're using our circumstances to bring us to a place of dependence. There's some in this room that you're calling, like you call Jacob to leave. They've got some stirring in their hearts to take a step of risk and faith. And I pray that they would respond. There are others here who are boxed in. It's circumstances, and honestly, they're squeezed. The circumstances are not great. But what you're saying is, will you trust me in the midst of them? 
Will you stop planning? Will you stop plotting? Will you stop scheming? And will you trust me to take care of this? God, increase our faith. And God, I pray for each of us that we would know what it is to cling to you. Not in an arrogant way, again, not in a petulant way, but with hearts full of faith. And to say, God, you've got to get involved in this. Or it's, it's, it's not going to work. I need you to get involved in this person's life. I need you to get involved in this situation. You've got to get involved in this community. You've got to get involved here. Or it's, it's, it's all going to, it's going to fall apart. And that sense of desperation, far from paralyzing us, God, I pray that it would provoke us to wrestle. I don't even know what that means. I just pray that it would provoke us to wrestle with you until we get answers. I think the answer is going to be yes a whole lot more than it's no. Because you're a great father. And you long to give good gifts to your children. And you love this world so much that you gave your own son for it. So help us, God, mature us and grow us that we would be men and women who are willing to cling to you, to wrestle with you, to prevail with you, to see you move in our lives, in our families, in our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's how we're going to close. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. I would urge you, if there's something that you want, then let us pray with you about that. You don't have to come up here and start crying. It's not about your level of emotion. It's about your level of want. If there's something that you're saying, this has got to happen. I need this to happen. Whether that's for you or with someone you're connected to, let our ministry teams agree with you and pray with you about that. So you guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us uh, after this song.